hope your day's going well. You know, that could mean a lot of things, right? So what does it mean to have your day going well, right? And, you know, um, we all know what it means, right? It means that your body's cooperating, your mind is at peace, your sits are pleasant, you're getting as much concentration as you think you should have, and it means you're not, and then there's a whole list of things we can fill in, right? You're not in pain, you're not sleepy, you're not bored, you're not angry, right? So we all know what a, um, a good meditation is, we know what a good retreat is, and I think that's uh, fine. Um, you know, um, I mentioned the other day that um, I think it was on opening night. I thought I said that um, I was kind of being a little humorous, but it's it's absolutely true that we, you know, as living beings, and Ines said the same thing, right? We we are naturally programmed. We want to go for more pleasant experiences, and we want to have less unpleasant. And I got a little bit of a laugh. I said, you know, is anyone here trying to have, I said something like, anyone here want to have less of what you want happen, less of the experiences you want and more experiences that you don't want? And no. And we kind of laughed, but we should really pause here and maybe hang out with this a little bit. Um, Because um, I think that's going right to the heart of Dharma and what... um, from a pra- what the practice is aiming us towards. What's, so if we were to uh, uh, go around and ask everyone, you know, well, wh- why did you come to a retreat or why do you meditate? There's probably a range of answers. It's not going to be one for everything. Um, and there's not a right or wrong. We have to find for ourselves. And I want to spend some time uh, in this talk exploring from a traditional Dharma perspective, why, what's the purpose of practice, how can it help us in service, and then actually talk about, you know, there's, it's a big world out there of meditation. There's many kinds of practices, uh, many ways. It's, it's not just one way, and it can be confusing. So I want to kind of give a good overview and try to bring it all together in maybe an integrated way. If you've never done so, it's really worthwhile taking some time to check in with your own mind, and notice what percentage of the time are you at peace? And what percentage of your thoughts are some version of, am I okay? Am I gonna be okay? I'm not okay. How am I gonna get to be okay? Oh my goodness, this thing might happen, or how can I keep that from happening? Some degree of worry or something not quite right or maybe a little anxiety or something, you have to look and see for yourself. But for many of us, uh, when we really take a look at our minds, it can be a bit shocking to see what's going on. And in fact, one of the things that can happen, think about what happens on this retreat. You come here, and I find it very interesting that what were the instructions to come here? We want you to Uh, take care of yourself, find a posture in which you can be as comfortable as possible. If you need to move, move. If you need to lie down, take care of your back, whatever you need to do. Um, 
You don't have to make anything happen. And all you're being asked to do is just be present with whatever it is that does happen. That's it. And we see that, I mean, sometimes that's okay, but how hard that can be sometimes, just to be present with ourselves. Right? And, um, you know, it, it can be hard when we start to see what's really, I mean, we quiet down and the external distractions are gone and we start to see what's really going on in our hearts and minds. So, you know, we're all different. And we do get to see uh, over, either on this retreat or over time, we, we'll, we will all discover places of our own being, our own hearts and minds, our own being of incredible beauty that maybe we had no idea was there but we'll also find places that maybe you didn't want to know was in there. My wife once, um, she came back, I think she was on a retreat for like three and a half months or something, and we had, we, we would have touched in a little bit, mostly I just, we didn't talk, and, but you know, once a week or twice, we'd give a little call for about a minute, how are you doing, I'm okay, love you, that kind of thing. It just kept us connected, but I didn't really know how her retreat was going. And uh, she came home, and, um, First thing that happened, I said, hey, great, gave her a hug, whatever. And then I said, how was your retreat? First thing out of her mouth, she said, she'd been a long time meditator, you know, for decades and decades already. So she knew what it was all about, right? She comes home, she says, I, I, I just, I don't know if this meditation's all that great. <laughs> she'd, had a, she'd had a rough retreat. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, I said, okay, what happened? She, and she, she said, I mean, like, do I have to feel everything? Do I have to see everything? You know, there were things in there like, you know, and she was talking like that. And then she said something, and I think she was kind of joking, but I don't know, a little serious, a little joking. She said, I mean, maybe it's better you just go through life. You don't feel anything. You don't know, you don't know nothing. <laughs> and then maybe it's just like, uh, except for maybe one moment just before you die of, oh shit, and then you're dead. <laughs> Instead of going through all this and getting to know ourselves and work on this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I can relate to that, you know, for sitting and when it when it's, feels good and beautiful and, um, uh, and you don't want the bell to ring. And some of you may be wondering when that's going to happen for you. <laughs> but it does. I'm actually, uh, I have, you know, I've been meditating a long time. I'm not making any great claim, but, um, um, uh, you know, my samadhi is pretty strong. Most of my sits are very, very pleasant. I'm the one sitting up here controlling the bell, and I'm sitting here thinking I don't want the bell to ring. You know, when it's pleasant, we want more of it, right? So, um, um, and it can be hard just to, just to be with ourselves too. There's this idea we talk about of befriending ourselves, this, this roomy poem of making, of being a, uh, like a guest house and everything that sounds great. But then when it's time to actually do it, it's, it's not so easy sometimes, oftentimes, right? An interesting place to pay attention if it's never happened for you, and this will happen for all of us sometimes. You're sitting in meditation. It's a tough sit. Oh, I'm not going to make it. When's that bell going to ring? And then this happens, you hear this, and the mind just goes, ah, you haven't even moved. All that happened, everything's the same except this sound arose in your mind. And you just totally relax and you're not suffering anymore. 
that's an interesting place, if it ever happens for you, to pay attention I'm, I'm not, of how much of our suffering is, can be caused in our own minds. That's a perfect place to notice right there, there right? So it you know, may or may not happen for you, but it's an interesting place to kind of hang out. So this is what we've got to deal with. This is this human condition that we're in. I'll share a quote from um, one, of my, uh, one of my earliest teachers, a man named Hari Das. He lives here in the Santa Cruz area. I believe he's still alive. Uh, I haven't you know, connected with him for many years. Um, He's got to be pretty old, but anyway, he's, this is a pretty close quote. Um, I didn't bring the exact quote, but I think I've got it pretty close. He said, more or less, um, we live our entire existence from this point of view, seeking those things, people, and situations we think will make us happy and avoiding those we think will make us unhappy. But even when conditions seem ideal to us, there is always that nagging certainty somewhere in our minds that the situation will inevitably change, that the security and happiness of the moment will be lost. In fact, we are never totally at peace. There is always something to worry about. Ordinary life is really a constant dilemma. You have to look for yourself into your own life and see if how much truth there may be in there for you. I can relate to it. And then he goes on, he says, spiritual practice has nothing to do with stoicism or self-denial or cutting yourself off from worldly responsibilities. Spirituality means learning to live as free, conscious, and loving beings rather than from the point of view of dilemma. And I like that a lot. And that's kind of in one way. There's a lot of ways you could talk about Dharma. And that's not traditional Buddhist language, but I relate to it a lot. And in a way, I feel like you could almost sum up then what, what's this all about. And you have to see if you like it. But to me, that sounds pretty good. Learning, how can I learn to live as a free, so we can get into what does that mean, but free, conscious, and loving being instead of from the point of view of dilemma instead of being at the mercy of my likes and dislikes. Because if you think, uh, look, let's just be honest about it. Of course, happiness comes out of conditions, right? No question about that. We want to take care of ourselves and the world and all the suffering in the world, and that's a huge topic, and it's big, right? And just to be able to be here, the fact that you're in this room, we're kind of in an elite status. It's this whole area of privilege and everything about that. I mean, there's a lot of suffering that a lot of people have in the world, and it's important. And so there's all, all of that really matters. And it's also true that to the extent we're not judging or criticizing ourselves, it's when the Buddha said, he didn't actually say life is suffering, by the way, that's a mistake mistaken view people have. The quote is, it says that life is a particular word, dukkha. So you don't have to learn all this poly, but that's a good one to know, dukkha. You know, uh, generally translated as suffering, but actually if you get the uh, poly text society's poly English dictionary, it's all online now, but I've got the print version from way back in the day. It's 11 by 14, 10 point font, 
three pages to define dukkha. So it, it comprises suffering, but it also can be that part of life that you have to check this out for yourself. But you know, for many of us, we kind of go through life with, it can be like a, almost, it can be very much in the foreground, but there can be a background of this isn't it. I'm not quite there. Something's a little not, we, it just hasn't all fallen together quite yet. You know, there's something missing. And for many, maybe most, I don't know, I don't want to be arrogant and say for all of us, you have to look for yourself, but you know, that's kind of, an, kind of the, a coloring on life. Right? That's dukkha. We may not know what there is, but it's not this. It's just around the corner. Matter of fact, there's a quote from, I'm going to mispronounce his name, you know, the first great Taoist master, Lao Tzu. The second one was Zhuang Tzu. I'm butchering the, the pronunciation. And this is, his quote is, um, I cannot tell if what people consider happiness is happiness or not. All I know is when I consider the way they go about attaining it, I see them carried along Headlong, uh, carry, swept away headlong, caught up in the general onrush of the human herd, unable to stop themselves or change direction, sw- or something swept away in, in, in the general onrush of the human herd, unable to stop themselves or change direction. All the while, they claim to be just on the point of attaining happiness. So I think that's kind of what he's trying to get at. So, I could go on and on about this, but we, you know, we want to take an honest look at ourselves, at our situations, at our hearts and our minds, our bodies, just the whole experience of our being. And when we hear teachings like this, I don't know, you know, how it, you, how it is for you, but maybe you, we start to think, well, that's a good idea. You know, I think I'm going to sign up for that. Uh, I want to learn to live as a free, conscious, and loving being, or in traditional Buddhist language, we talk about what's called liberation through non-clinging. And so it's a, that's a big topic. What, what do we mean by clinging? What, but I'm not going to get into that, but you know, just to free our hearts and minds. Yep, I'm signing up for that. Great. And then what you'll find is, sometimes you can do it, but a lot of times, like, you can't do it. Because the certain, the right causes, conditions, experiences, circumstances will come rolling around. You're caught right back again. You're stuck. And sometimes we don't even know the way out. I mean, I can't tell you, you know, this thing about the, the two arrows, right? And I'm just recapping. I think you all got it. You know, we all have, it can be pain and suffering. That's like being shot with an arrow. And then the second one is we add a layer of suffering on top because we can't work with it. We can't be present with it and all this. I cannot tell you how many times I'm talking to my mind. It's like, I'm going to shoot myself with the second arrow. I'm going to shoot. I'm warning you. (laughs) And then I shoot myself. I told you. I told you. But my mind's not cooperating. I even see it and know it. It's not always easy to do. I remember, I'll just tell you one story. Uh, I was on a very long retreat, once had a, a year-long retreat, and uh, it was like this, but there weren't any, you were kind of in your, just in my room practicing, and, and I was deep in, I think it was like six months in, and I'm just, just, and just I mean, it was amazing. One day, I wake up, I just hate everybody. <laughs> What's going on? Where did that come from? Everybody can just 
die. It was like that. <laughs> and so I'm walking around the center, you know, I'm mostly in my room practice, but you come out to go eat or whatever. And everybody that passed me, of course you're in silence, but in my mind, I'm not even gonna tell you how defiled my mind was. Somebody who passed in my mind would be like, rah, 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 rah. it wasn't pretty. And then the next thing I'd do, I'd yell at myself, Shakeman! <laughs> okay, that wasn't working. You can't always control these things, right? These things come and go and come and go. And then on top of it, I'm just beating myself up for being in such, you know, how terrible and all this, you know, gee, you know, you're here and it's already been in the, uh, months and months and for what? You're still full of ill will and whatever. And, and, and um, yeah, I, I mean, something, I was shocked. I don't, I don't recall really getting like that level. It's not like I can't ever have annoyance or ill will, but this was something else. And I tried everything and finally, um, I went back to, uh, I, I was sitting there eating at lunch and I finally just said, told my mind, I said, fine, that's the way you're going to be about it. We're just going back to the room. We're just going to sit in there and you can just suffer and see how you like that. So I went back to the room, laid down on the bed and just let it, it's, you know, we talk about it. Uh, uh, I appreciated what Inez was saying about rain and one of the things was not taking it personally. And, but we want to be clear what, what she means is, of course it's personal, it's you. If I'm caught in ill will, that is me, it's not you. So in that sense, yes, it's personal. But I think what she's talking about is there's also the impersonal where things are just happening, you know, not totally in our control, just coming and going, arising and passing away due to causes, their own causes and conditions. That's the kind of impersonal. So I, I had to kind of, I tried working on the personal, then I had to go to the impersonal. Just let the process just play itself out and, and not get so identified and hooked into it and just see it's just, just, just what's happening is what's happening. And my mindfulness was very, you know, my presence was very clear and awake after all that practice, so I was very aware of what was happening. And after a while it kind of washed out and I'm back to my normal loving self and and I just go about my business. It's like, so, you know, these, the life is just unfolding in its own way. And so our task is to learn how to manage all this given, okay, here's the situation we're in, right? This is why we need to practice. Because the habitual tendencies, we call them the conditioned patterns, the habits of mind run deep. And we're, you know, we all share certain things in common, but we're also unique, we're individual, and we all have what I call our top 10 tunes, the main ways that we create suffering for ourselves, perhaps for others. And you know, it, it'll be different for all of us, but we could name a lot of them, but I don't want to get into all that. And so we need some help. This is why we practice, right? And so I want to now spend some time, um, well, what, it, what are the things that can help us? So we're able to meet each moment um, first of all, there's a purification that can happen so that the difficulties don't arise in us as much. That's, that's part that can happen over the course of practice. But when they do, we're, more, we're less caught in things and we know what's happening, we're more clear and we're more able to let go and keep our hearts open. And we need to tr some training. Um, so I want to say a little bit about what I my take on what some of the main elements that were uh, that comprise meditation practice what are the things that we're 
cultivating. And then some of the ways they get, they come together in different styles of meditation. So I should say that as we get into all this, it's not one way for everyone, right? It's important to, to say this, as you hear all this, as if you stick around the Dharma scene or the meditation scene for any length of time, there's just a huge range of teachings, of techniques, methods, practices, approaches. And the reason for that, and the Buddha taught a lot of different techniques because we're all different. So what, even if, first of all, even if we all did the exact same practice, it would unfold differently for each of us because we're, we're, we're different. And secondly, what works best for one person is not going to, there's no one size fits all is what I want to say. And this is very important. You will, it's common to hear teachers say, you know, you've got to practice like this, like this, like this, and it's very specific. And that's fine. Perfectly fine. That's their system. And I'm not criticizing anyone. That's fine. And then sometimes we try out those systems and it's a, if it's very specific and doesn't have a lot of flexibility, if it happens to be a match for you, that's great and can be very powerful. And every system I've ever heard of is real and powerful and genuine for those for whom it's a match. Right. And there, if it's not going to work for you, it's not like we want to jump around from one thing to another. We want to really go deep with things, but we want to find our own what serves us best. And that's why there's a, a range of practices. It's not one way. And before I get into, uh, I'll just start with a quote from Jack Cornfield. This is for an interview um, that I did with him on the topic. Now the topic is samadhi, which is concentration. I'm going to say a little bit about that actually in a, in a bit. But I think it, 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 this, what he's talking about is, my point is more than just the samadhi, just about all of meditation practice. But I started, I, I asked him why he thought there was such a range of views about what's wise or skillful or right concentration samadhi. And he said... Um, what is true about Buddhist practices is that the Buddhist teachings are a great mandala of skillful means. In the early 1970s, I collected teachings from 12 of the most highly regarded meditation masters in Thailand and Burma who were teaching variations of mindfulness or insight or vipassana practice. This material became my first book, Living Buddhist Masters. That's still in print under the title Living Dharma. Each of these teachers had different approaches to Vipassana practice, and some of them, if you don't know the word Vipassana, that's what we translate as insight uh, meditation, Vipassana. Each of these teachers had different approaches to Vipassana practice, and some of them emphasized concentration more than others. All 12 styles were representative of 50 or 100 ways that I know to do Vipassana. In many cases, they did not agree with one another on the best way to practice. Sometimes the styles were diametrically opposed to one another. In laying out living Buddhist masters, I deliberately contrasted the teachings so that one great master who emphasized meditation on the body as the best way to attain enlightenment was next to another enlightened master who said the only way to get liberated is to meditate on the mind. I did this so people would understand that there are a number of different skillful means to cultivate the factors of enlightenment and come to liberation. And this is kind of the, 
the, the crux here. Any practice that cultivates mindfulness and wise effort and investigation and joy and concentration and calm and equanimity and compassion will bring one to liberation. And there are many, many ways to do that. That's the key. And I will just add one last piece that I thought was interesting too. And then I said to him, of course there are those who'll say that's well and good, but there really is a right way that we do need to understand that other paths might be good in certain ways, but they might actually not be leading to what the Buddha was talking about. And here's Jack's, which I thought was really good. He said, that's the conservative position. But in fact, if you go back to the old countries of Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka, you can't even get the Theravada masters themselves to agree. I've heard so many masters say, I teach the true way, right from the suttas, from the original. This is the real way the Buddha taught. I've heard a whole bunch of masters say that, and yet they contradicted one another when they said it. So I don't buy it. That's called ignorance. The real freedom is what Ajahn Chah understood. The real freedom is the freedom of letting go. It's not the freedom of clinging to what one believes is historically true, because what is historically true is this mandala, and it's not one way. So um, I appreciate that, and I find it very liberating. So you can see if that's useful for you. So I want to focus on three main aspects of any kind of practice, regardless of the specific technique that I think all come together with different emphasis, which I'll come back and talk about different ways we can emphasize. But the three aspects are mindfulness, concentration, and insight. And I want to say a little about what each are and then how they can come together in different ways. Now I want to say that I'm um, setting aside another very important foundational part, which is are the heart practices of loving kindness and compassion and that's really really big too and there are whole systems of practice that are devoted just to those and they're really really important so um, you can you can practice them as distinct practices with the aim of 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 opening the heart cultivating love and compassion and you can also take those qualities and suffuse the mindfulness, concentration, insight with the ki loving kindness and compassion. So there's a lot of ways to do it, but I just want to name that uh, there's I'm purposely setting that aside, but it's not to diminish them. I just am focusing on particular aspects. So first, mindfulness. Seems like we just talk about mindfulness all the time. There's no, so let me just say this, uh, there's different um, definitions of mindfulness. I'll give you my definition. John Kabat-Zinn has a definition, something like mindfulness is paying attention on purpose in a particular way. And that's a good definition. That's talking about more the practice of mindfulness, the actual mental state of mindfulness. I define it as not being lost on automatic pilot. Sometimes people will say, like if you've gotten, if you're not mindful, they'll say, oh, that person, they went unconscious, they lost their mindfulness. And we know what they mean. But in fact, of course, you're not unconscious. You've just gotten caught up in what's happening. You, you're just, you're still conscious, you're in the experience, but, 
but there's a difference when you kind of wake up out of it and you know what's happening. It's one thing to be, I'll just make up anything, angry, and you're having the experience, you're in it. And it's very different, but you're kind of lost in it. You're on what I call automatic pilot, and then you kind of wake up out of that and you know. You still have the experience, but you know, I'm angry. Then at least you have the potential for a choice point there, right? We can get that wedge of mindfulness in between what happens and our response to it. So hopefully we have a better chance of it being a wise response rather than just reactivity. So that's, you know, my definition. And we can be mindful of anything, right? We've been talking about it here. You can be mindful of what's going on in your body. Moods, emotions, thoughts. I'm going to say a little something about thoughts in a, in a later sitting today. We, want to be, we can bring that in. We can be mindful of, of others and our interactions and our judgments and opinions. and just ev- Anything we can be mindful of. It. So that's a big topic and it probably deserves more, maybe a whole talk, really a lifetime of exploration around mindfulness. But for now, I'll just say what part of what we're doing here is we are, you always start with mindfulness and then we're directing our attention. You know, if you pay attention to your breathing as say a foundational practice, that's what we call that mindfulness of breathing. And we use our mindful attention to connect with and direct in certain ways. Okay. So I'm doing this, going through them in a certain order, but there's, there's really no order, but I'm just, I'm next going to move to what's this word, samadhi, which we generally translate as concentration, right? If you use your mindful awareness and let's just say uh, connect with your breathing, mind, mindfulness of breathing, that's a training coming back over and over. It's training your mind to settle and being able to stay and not be jumping all over the place. And so as that settling or stability starts to strengthen, we're saying the co- concentration is deepening, right? So we can use mindfulness in that way. We also can use mindfulness on the insight side, which I'll come to. Um, so this word samadhi, we, I, I Personally, I, I don't like the translation concentration. We're stuck with it. Everybody uses it. The problem is, there's a lot of co- it's fine, but there's a lot of different connotations in of the English usage. Uh, so I want to get clear: what do we mean when we say samadhi? The word samadhi actually means undistracted or undistractedness. That's a state of being undistracted. And an undistracted mind can manifest in a range of ways. It's not just one way. And I'm going to, I only have a little time, but I'll say just a few basics about it. It's also a big topic. Um, But just to get an idea of there's different ways that it will naturally unfold for each of us if we didn't interfere with its progression. And we can steer it in different ways. So, um, anyway, so let me just say a little about it. So I'm going to be using the example of working with our breath, but as we've already said, breath meditation, you know, that may or may not be your practice. So every time I say breath, you just substitute in if you're doing something different as your foundational kind of root or home-based practice. So believe it or not, 
If you keep practicing and keep bringing your attention, gentle, calm, don't tie yourself in a knot, just keep coming back. It doesn't matter, by the way, if, you, if, you're, in a medit- if you're sitting and you're lost in daydreaming or planning or thoughts 98% of the time, just by coming back to your breath when you do remember is fully enough and it's enough to keep it deepening. That's really good news. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd all be in big trouble. <laughs> so, um, and so we keep coming back and it's a training and with, you know, practice, um, the mind starts to settle and we start, to, we start, you hear people talking about, well, I'm deepening in the meditation, I'm dropping in deeper, the concentration's deepening. And when, in my early days, I would sit there and it would be just like, what is that? What's it going to be? And, um, but things start happening. And, and it manifests in a lot of ways. But what happens is we, well, I'll just name a few, but it, it, it's a huge, highly individual. But f- maybe we start to feel more present. Our mind's not jumping around so much. There can be a deep sense of peace or stillness or calm. Some people will start to feel some energies moving in their body or some people hear sounds or lights. You don't have to hear any of this. I'm just don't, don't go chasing any of this. But I'm just saying all kinds of stuff and it can be uh, very pleasant. It's not always pleasant because a lot of energies can happen that can be too energetic and then that's okay. We learn to work with those. But oftentimes as we start to settle in, it's really pleasant. That's what I'm talking about when you're sitting. It's just like, uh, oh man, I'm gonna, you, know, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. How many times, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, about samadhi, have you, um, you know, the bell rings and just say, you know, I think I'm just going to sit and keep sitting another 10, 15 minutes. Great. How many times when you're sitting in hell (laughs) and the bell rings, have you said, you know, I'm going to hang out with this another 10 or 15 minutes. And we don't even notice we do it. That's the training we need, right? That's why we need to have mindfulness to know how are we relating to our experience. We just get caught over and over in the quality of the experience. So what happens is the mind starts to settle. Lots of manifestations that happen that are beyond the scope of this talk, but just to say um, our mind, the undistractedness deepens. And all I really want to say for now is, is that there's two main ways. That it's a lot of variation. These, everything I'm saying here are gross oversimplifications, but I, I think you'll get the idea. Uh, but it's good just to have a basic idea because it'll feed into how we bring the concentration in with the, with the insight meditation. So if you keep coming back to your breath, coming back to your breath, you'll get better at staying with the breath. Your ability to stay on one thing strengthens to the point where you can be more just with the breath. And actually it can, not always, but it can get to a place where you start to notice other experiences less. They recede more into the background because you're becoming more focused on or undistracted on one thing. And if you take that far enough, what can happen is it's like you really stop noticing other things, like you just don't really feel your body anymore. And you don't... Um, notice thoughts or moods or emotions or sounds because everything's engrossed kind of on the one thing. You've gotten so good at concentrating. You've strengthened that ability. And if you take that far enough, you can actually get to a place, There's a this is specialized states, but you should just know, you can actually get to a place where they use the term one-pointedness or unification of mind, where 
you know, let's just say there's a, it's very blissful feeling or you see light or bliss or whatever it is for you when you're really concentrated. There'll only be the bliss and the light and you're like, there, you don't feel your body, there's no, and it's just light. And you won't be complaining. <laughs> It'll be like, this is good. <laughs> and that's all right. <laughs> so, but you, what will have happened for you is you will have lost connection with the changing flow of experience because you, you're kind of fixed on one thing. And in fact, th- taking it that far, not many people take it that far, but it depends on just your interest and how much you dedicate yourself to do it. But um, it's called fixed concentration, right? And it's also sometimes called exclusive concentration because it excludes awareness of anything else because you're exclusively with the one so that's kind of the idea. So for you, the changing flow of experience will stop. It's not actually true. There is a part of the mind, but that gets the idea across. It's, it's not quite that straightforward. That'll be important because I'm going to talk about insight in a minute and how that fits in. There's another way that undistractedness can develop. Rather than this is hard to explain, let's see. Rather than the f- experience of change stopping for you, the mind, it's just, this n- next one is just as deep, but it's very different. The, ex- the, um, the mind itself comes to utter stillness and has stopped, just as deep as before, but the changing flow of experience hasn't shut off. It's also, you could say, one-pointed, and I call it unification of mind to make a distinction. And... Um, um, instead of being exclusive, it's inclusive because it's not, you actually enhances your connection with the mind and the body through this kind of samadhi because you're so present and still, just as still and unmoving and undistracted as in the exclusive, but you haven't shut down the brain centers that, that allow uh, changing. The brain, in both styles, I don't know if the brain really works this way, but it's a way of speaking. Whatever it is in the brain that lets the mind come to one-pointedness or unification of mind is the same. But in the exclusive, you've also shut down other brain centers so that you can't experience changing phenomena. And this one, those are left alone and can still operate. So it's hard to explain, but when you experience it. So that's inclusive. And in this one, no matter how far you take it, you actually haven't disconnected from yourself. It's different. It's not like one's better will each naturally head in one of these two directions and you can steer it in either direction. And we're not going to get into how to do that now, but you just come talk, talk to one of us or come talk to me or whomever and we can help you do that. It's, that's something I've actually talked to a few of you about how we can steer it. Okay. So just know we can take this undistractedness in a certain way. No Buddhist teachers say, be distracted. <laughs> But there's a wide range of opinions and views and actually controversy about what kind of concentration and how it fits with mindfulness and insight and how much to emphasize it. And I'm going to come back to talk about that in just a few minutes. We have mindfulness, just knowing what's happening. There is the concentration, which is just the undistractedness of our mind. And also the insight. That's also another huge topic. I'll just name a few. I, uh, again, I can only just touch on it. And, um, and these are, again, generalizations. But I'll give you my meaning on insight. What, is, what do I mean when I say insight? And other people may have a different takes. 
For me, insight is anything that we understand, perceive, see or know, or experience in service of liberating our hearts and minds. Anything we come to know about the world, about ourselves, about anything. Traditionally, insights could be tended to talk about insights into what's known as the three characteristics, all these fancy terms, three characteristics of existence. That's a pretty heavy word. If you care about the Pali, don't worry if you don't, don't try to memorize this. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Impermanence. Dukkha I already talked about. We'll use suffering as shorthand, but we know that what we mean by dukkha, this, there's something missing, dissatisfaction, suffering. Unreli- the best word, I think, if you wanted to pick one word for dukkha, unreliable or unsatisfactory. So all of life is unreliable because it changes. You can only control it so much. So there's that quality. But we don't have to suffer if we're not looking to it to do more for us than it can do. Even getting everything you want, if you could set up your dream life, which I don't know any, maybe somebody's done that. Uh, I haven't managed. God knows I've tried. But, uh, you know, um, um, things change. It doesn't last. You know, as I've gotten older, <laughs> you know, some, some mornings I wake up, something just hurts for no obvious reason. And that's getting, happening more <laughs> with more frequency as I get older. It's, life's just, it, you know, and I can't command the body not to do that. You know, things unfold in their own ways. That's kind of the unreliable nature. Right? And if I'm looking to my body to be a certain way, clinging to it in a certain way for my happiness, it's a setup for suffering. If I have insight into that, I really get it about that, about impermanence and about this unsatisfactory aspect and the suffering that comes if I'm, uh, that's a real insight. I mean, we can, we can know it intellectually, but if we really get it deeply experientially on a real deep experiential level, the idea is it hopes, hopefully supports us to let go of our clinging. That's why insights can help us, just kind of in a nutshell. So now when I look in the mirror and I see some old guy looking back at me, rather than what I used to do, you know, I've told this story, some of you may have heard it. Uh, so I, some, not all of you are from California, but most of you are. The way they do the driver's license here is go down to the Department of Motor Vehicles, the DMV, they take your picture. Week or so later, a few weeks later, driver's license comes in the mail and you renew every five years. And they have this thing where you uh, renew by mail. So five years came, sent in my check. A few weeks later, my new driver's license came. Same one, same old photo. Yep, that's me, that's me. Second five years, same thing. Third five years, has been 15 years, I have to go into um, the DMV to get, to, uh, to get a new picture. Fine, no big deal. A few weeks later, the new picture comes in. Take out the old one. Yet, yep, yep. Take out the new one. It's like, what happened? <laughs> I look in the mirror. Where'd my youth go? <laughs> Who's that old guy? <laughs> right? If I'm clinging to my youth, that's just one example of many. Right? It's a setup for suffering. If I see, 
and, and I look in the mirror, I actually looked like, what went wrong? Well, nothing went wrong. It's just what happens. If we know, well, you know, that's just what happens. And I'm just kind of in, at peace with life as it is, which is kind of a cliche to say that, but it's really true. We don't suffer. So we have insights like that. I could say a lot more about that. But we can also have psychological insights can help liberate us. I don't want to get into it all, but a lot of insights can come. And, um, but anyway, that's the basic idea is, and it goes back to kind of what my wife said, which was, you know, about, well, maybe it's better to just don't feel anything and, and we don't have to go through this life. But the problem is, those conditioned patterns are, are operative whether we're conscious of them or not. And they, they move us into reactivity in ways we may not know. So insights can help um, uh, reveal them and help liberate them. So there, it's a big topic around insights, but that's the idea. Yeah. Mindfulness, concentrate, uh, st- stability of mind and the insights. And of course the open-heartedness, which I'm not emphasizing here. And they all work together in some way or another. So in the last part of this talk, just very briefly, I want to name, because there's at least a third of us here are new, even for those of us who are experienced practitioners, it can be confusing because it's a big world, different teachers teach in different styles with different emphasis. And I just want to name some of the different styles and all of these that I'm going to name, and there's many, I'm just going to kind of touch on a high level, um, are, uh, it's all good practice. None of these are, for real, are, are better than any others. But they're just different ways to bring these building blocks of the mindfulness, the concentration, the insight together in different ways. Okay? So, I'm going to break it up. This is a little artificial, but just, just as a way of speaking, I thought I'd break it up into, sort of into all of meditation. I'd put it into three categories. This definitely a, is a gross oversimplification, but I think it'll it'll conserve us. Um, concentration meditation. The, it's sort of like three branches of the meditation family. There are practices that we will call concentration meditation, many, many different styles. There are kinds of meditation we call insight meditation. And then there's a third branch, which is really concentration insight kind of brought together as one style of practice. And these are all ways you'll hear taught. And I just want to say a little about each of those so you can kind of get a sense. And that might help inform as you move forward to really help you find your best, your, your what, what, what connects for you, resonates for you the best. So it's, this, uh, this is I, it's kind of fraught with peril because whatever I say is, is oversimplifying. So please understand, but we, I need to speak in some way. So everything I'm saying is not exactly right. So, but in, roughly speaking, what the, what the path of concentration is saying is, yes, the mindfulness and insight are important, but having this deeply undistracted or concentrated mind is so valuable and powerful that we're going to do practices that emphasize the, the development of the samadhi. We're going to lean heavily on that side of things and not really emphasize the other sides. And then later, we can turn to these other practices called insight meditation. But really, what the purpose is, is to develop the concentration. I'll say something in a bit. It, it turns out you can't really separate them out. 
even if you think you're leaning, this is really true, if you think you're gonna just do concentration, you can. I'll say why in a minute, you'll understand, but you know, all the times you can't concentrate and you're suffering, you're on the insight side. (laughs) So you can't really separate them, but that's the emphasis, right? And so I'm not gonna get into all the practices, but many, many, a big range of techniques and practices on how we, one way to do it would be just to take the breath and give it very heavy emphasis. Breath, 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 and you, you don't wanna fight against other experiences, but you're so emphasizing it that you're just trying to just stay on this one thing and do it. That, that could be an example. So I won't say anyway, but that's the basic idea. I think on the insight side, what people there, again, it's gross generalization, but I think it's fair to say the idea would be that, yes, of course, the, um, uh, the, the, the undistractedness is important, but you don't have to do this kind of practice called concentration just by being mindful moment to moment the best you can with the changing flow of experience. You get all the concentration you need because you're still attending to, you're still not, you're not spacing out, you're still using your attention, bringing it back, and it does develop a certain amount of stability and then the focus on it is more and and I think what you'll hear a lot and this isn't totally true is that in this way of thinking mindfulness and insight tend to get equated sometimes not always is kind of one thing and then the concentration being a different kind of practice with its own aims so that's a way you'll hear it and even I used to teach uh, Spirit Rock uh, the concentration retreat they do every year I don't, haven't done it for a number of years but while I was doing it for a few years in a row, and they would talk and say, okay, we're doing concentration practice. And then the last few days of the retreat, the teacher, I remember one of the teachers said, okay, now if you want, you can open up and switch over to doing insight meditation. So you can see that they were separating them out as different practices. And what did they mean by insight meditation? Um, I think in their, uh, their way of doing concentration, you were really really on the breath or maybe doing some loving kindness phrases, which is a mantra practice, which is, can be concentrating. And you let go of that and you, you want to stay more moment to moment as the rising and passing away of changing experience. You want to stay in touch with change more. I, I wish I had more time because it, it, it needs more to, uh, yeah. But, uh, and sometimes on the insight side, it won't only be I should say just one thing. It's not only just being mindfully present with what's happening. That it can be. But sometimes you'll actually want to consciously look for arising and passing away or change. You'll actually purposely look to see those characteristics or others. So that can be a flavor in insight meditation also that gets talked about. Depends on the teacher. Just in these two ways I'm talking about, there's, so in the insight side, there's a range of just take the breath, of how much teachers will emphasize the breath. Even on insight meditation, some teachers will still give a pretty strong emphasis on the breath. But of course, being willing, as we're talking about here, to open up to other experiences and everything, you're not clinging to the breath. Pretty strong emphasis. They see the value of that for the samadhi. Others, um maybe don't give that much to the breath at all. And there's, there's no, really take it to one, one end of the spectrum and there may be no special emphasis on the breath. There's just what's happening moment by moment 
and staying open. And you can even do these kind of open choiceless awareness kind of practices where you're not directing your attention onto anything. The way you kind of say it is it's more like, this is, <laughs> I'm just leaving so much out, but you know, you're just resting in open awareness and it's, rather than putting your attention onto experiences, you're just being present as experiences arise and pass away. There's many flavors of insight meditation. So when you hear these different ways it's taught, we don't want to fall into confusion or, well, am I supposed to do that? Am I supposed to do this? There's not a right or wrong. Depending on the teacher you're with, you may want to give that style a try. And really try it on and see how's it, or then you'll hear another teacher at the next retreat and maybe the emphasis is a little different. Maybe you don't relate to that and you'll stick with what you knew. Or maybe you'll really kind of, well, wait a minute, I'm going to lean on this emphasis a little. So. But to know that it's, it's not that there's a confusion, it's just there's a range of ways to bring these all together. I want to take the last few minutes and just say something about the third style of practice, which is, uh, I need a better name for it, it's mindfulness. And you're not separating mindfulness, concentration, and insight out into separate practices. This is the way I practice and teach. Um, I'm not the only one. Generally in our scene, this idea of concentration as a style of practice and insight it seems to be kind of the predominant way. There are some historical reasons for that. Uh, we can, it's kind of, I don't know if you're interested, but there was this great master in Burma, Mahasi, and one of his number of students, but Upandita was one who's well known, and through them, they, uh, a number of the teachers who were foundational in the insight meditation scene in this country. They practiced in a lot of ways, but they tended to bring this Mahasi style here, which was very much this, uh, this kind of what they'd call a pure insight style, and concentration was thought of as different. And so they really, the techniques and methods were really separated out. And that's, it's great, it's good, fine. But there are many ways in the tradition, it may not, it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm not a lone voice. There actually are voices out there like me, but uh, uh, I'm not the only one. Altan Jeff, if you know Ajahn Tanisaro, and there are some others, Eugene Cash at Spirit Rock and some others who tend to synthesize it. It's, what I'm about to say is not better than any other way. It's just another way that you can just, I want you to just hear and you can see maybe that connects for you or it doesn't. So I'm not pushing it because it happens to be my own style. Because I, I really, those of you who know me, the most important thing is to find what is the most supportive for you. And it's, it really, I'm not just being politically correct. It's not one way. It really isn't. I mean, it's what Jack said. So here's the style that brings the two together. You, whatever, pick your mindfulness of breathing. It could be lots of different practices but I'm just, that you can do. And you give, I'd say, pretty strong emphasis, you want to stay relaxed, but pretty strong emphasis just staying with your breath. And during the times when your mind's clear and your concentration's good and there's not a lot of other stuff, you just stay with that. And you just go with it. And by doing that, you just take the concentration as far as deep as you want. That's it. You don't have to think of anything else. On its own, it's been many, many times when you can't concentrate or your grief or shame or worry is going to come up or your body's hurting and you can't concentrate, whatever, just as we all know, you don't have to switch over to another style of practice called insight. 
Your experience has informed what's needed. You're on the insight side of the practice, and then we let our experience inform what's needed, and then we work in that way. And then we use any of these tools, bear awareness with mindfulness, or looking for the insights, the rising of passing away, bringing loving kindness into the practice. Um, many, we say a lot about the kind of the way we're teaching here about how to work with the changing array of experiences, how to be with things, how to let go of our suffering, all of that. You're just on the insight side. And then either you choose because you kind of feel done and you want to switch, or whatever happens subsides, what's happening subsides, or you just need a break, or it's no longer interesting, you're back on the concentration side. Your experience has, you didn't have to choose, you're just back there. And just go with the breath, stay with it, give it a lot of emphasis, and you just, and there's a lot we can say about how do we deepen the samadhi, and I'm not getting into that, but you follow what we can do to deepen it. And in this way, we just sit and be open to the present moment without an agenda. And we just let the unfolding of, we meet the present moment unfolding with the most wisdom and skill that we have, do the best we can, and we come to know with time when we're naturally on the concentration side, and it's fine, you just go for it. Really, take it all the way to these states called jhana, which I'm not talking about here, but you'll hear about and are important. You don't have to get jhana, you don't have to get anything. By the way, you know that year-long retreat? So I had been in jhana on other retreats, so I had it, and it usually take, take me about a month of practice, and I drop into jhana. I thought, well, this is gonna be great. I had it all planned out, this is gonna be great. Now I'm gonna be here like a year. One month I'll be into jhana, check, got that one checked, then I'll just go into all these deeper levels of insight, and it's, this is gonna be great. You know, I'm gonna be enlightened by the time I'm, I'm out of here. Two months, three months, no jhana. I'm suffering. I go to the teacher. I'm, crying. I think, I think I probably literally was crying about that. And, and of course, it was Joseph Goldstein. He said, well, you know, the, the deeper stages of liberation come not from getting any particular meditative state, but from the non-clinging around whatever is happening. And I said something like, well, you know, of course, Joseph, that's true. Uh, but in order to understand that fact deeply, I got to get... <laughs> And I proceeded to suffer. And of course, in, in its own time, everything comes and all that. But, you know, and it was a lot of suffering. Anytime the phrase, I got to get, comes up in your mind, that's a setup for suffering. It's really, what's, what's the present moment? How do I work with the present moment? And so... Um, and the way forward, I said this, maybe it was in the Q&A last night or maybe in one of the groups, I can't remember, but there's this idea of trying to do two things at once. So this might be a repeat. I, I don't remember who I said this to. There's a path of cultivation. There's a path. That implies we're getting somewhere. That's true. We don't want to say there's no path. I mean, there are traditions that the path of no path, and, but that's fine too. It's okay to want to develop more Wisdom, kindness, empathy, clarity, all these things. So there's a path. So we're, you could think in a way it sounds like, oh, we're trying to get somewhere. And that's fine. But at the same time, we're not trying to go anywhere at all. We're just trying to be here. 
So it can feel confusing like we're doing two opposite things at the same time. But they actually, the confusion goes away when we see we're really only trying to do one thing, that there is a path of cultivation. But the way you walk the path is not trying to get anywhere, it's just trying to be here. That is the path. And then let it unfold. So we let this path unfold. It informs us when we're just in the present moment on the concentration, we're on the insight side, using mindfulness as foundation for all of us. And that way you kind of get them both. And uh, just um, up against the clock, but just a couple of other things to add in about that, just for completeness. Even in that style of practice where we let the present moment see and we kind of surf seamlessly back and forth between these two, there will be times when you choose to want to lean on one side or the other. And that's fine. You can direct yourself. Okay, I want to emphasize the concentration. So that's okay to bring that in too. Or there'll be times when you just feel like you may not label it on being on the insight side, but you may want to turn your mind towards investigating, being present with and everything. You just intuit that that's what's needed. We'll always have that in our toolkit too. So you can let it unfold organically or choose. Yeah. So that was, I hope that was helpful. Not, I hope it didn't add to confusion, but just give you a sense of kind of the terrain. I had thought about what to speak about, but it just came up for me since there's many of us who are new to practice and maybe it hopefully doesn't add confusion. And if so, um, um, you know, you can always, for any of this, um, you can use what I call the clothes shopping analogy kind of, um, I'm, it's kind of supposed to be a little humorous, but I, I think there's really some truth here. So you're at the store and there's all the whatever. Shirts are on the rack. You look through and you look through and you find one that you like. And you take it off. You actually have to try it on and see how it fits. And of course you want to look at the price tag and all the other stuff. But, uh, uh, and you know, if it's a fit, you like it, it's working for you, you keep that. And this is not about following our likes and dislikes. That is, see, this is the tricky part. We don't want to follow in the of in, in the trap of following our preferences, and that's a trap potentially, but we do want to authentically listen to what really resonates and is serving me. And those aren't the same thing, but they can be hard to distinguish. So you do the best you can. But like in the clothes shopping, if something I've offered or someone else and it doesn't work for you, just stick it back on the rack <laughs> and find what works. Keep it simple and I hope the last thing is, I've gone just a couple minutes over, so I'll end, but the, the last thing is, if you did nothing else, you don't have to remember all this detail, whatever you need will be there. If you did nothing else, but, but kept yourself in touch with your intention, that could go a long way, right? Because if your intention is to live in a way that's wise and skillful, in a way with an open, loving heart, and it's wisely responsive and not habitually reactive, then the techniques, the methods, the things, that can all, I think, kind of, we don't have to get so much hung up on one technique or method. It's really the underlying intention can, can be so supportive for us. So thank you very much for your kind attention. I uh, appreciate it. And uh, we'll sit maybe, I'm three minutes over, so maybe we'll just sit a few seconds just to take a few mindful breaths together and then I'll ring the bell to end.